wanted to talk this morning a little bit about um, part of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, uh, and also the book of Galatians, which some people say is the earliest written book of the New Testament. Um, and a similar theme that I see running through both of those uh, books or, or the, the parts that I'm going to talk about. Um, and that has to do with saving ourselves or our attempts to save ourselves from our inadequacy and how that creates distance from God. Uh, and the part I'd like to speak about in Genesis has to do with the, um, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. And we learn about this tree beginning in Genesis chapter 2, where uh, in, in verse 9, we learn that out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life, also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And later in this chapter, we hear the first commandment of God to man. And that commandment is, uh, in, in verse 16, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the gar garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And it's interesting, one of the things that's interesting to me about this commandment is that up to this point, uh, God has said things and immediately they are so. So if you look back at uh, the first chapter of Genesis, uh, verse 3, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. In verse 6, And God said, Let there be a firmament, and God made the firmament. Verse 9, God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together onto one place. Let the dry land appear. And it was so. And it goes on and on like that. Uh, and verse 11, God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit. Uh, and it was so. And verse 14, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of heaven. And, uh, and it was so. And so, throughout the beginning of Genesis, God says things, and they're so. Then God commands man, the one thing, one commandment, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But even in the commandment, God is foreshadowing that that commandment will be broken. He says, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And so this is different. The relationship between God and man and God and the rest of creation is different, at least in this, this respect. So moving on, after um, God has commanded Adam not to eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, Eve is created and they're in the garden together, the, the first man and the first woman. And we learn at the end of chapter 2 that they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And then Eve meets the serpent. And the serpent begins by uh, acting uh, ignorant, acting uh, as though he doesn't know what God had said. And, and recasting what God had said uh, in exactly the opposite of the way that, that God had, had said it to Adam. Um, he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And of course, that's exactly not what God said. God said, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But the serpent casts it in, a, in a, an unreasonable way, that God is unreasonably 
has told you, or, or he is characterizing it as though God told uh, Adam not to eat of every tree of the garden. But Eve says, we can eat of the fruit of the uh, trees of the garden, but in verse 3, she says, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And so there she's adding something to what God said. God didn't say, don't touch it. He said, don't eat it. But Eve adds something to that. And the serpent says that ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And after the serpent says that, Eden, Eden, Eve rationalizes. She rationalizes what the serpent has said against what God has said. In verse 6, she, she saw that the tree was good for food. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. And so she's putting her faith in, in wisdom over her faith in God. Because God said, don't eat of this tree. But she is rationalizing it, seeing that it is a source of wisdom, and placing that above her faith in God. She is having faith in herself and her ability to... Uh, rationalize what is good and how to make things uh, better than what God commanded. And so the immediate effect of that, so God said, the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And what immediately happens after they eat the fruit is that the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And so, at the end of chapter 2, they were both naked and they weren't ashamed. Their state hasn't changed. Nothing has changed about their nakedness. Their nakedness was good. It was created by God. They were not ashamed of it before they broke God's only commandment. But what happens after they broke that commandment, after they ate that fruit, after they became aware of good and evil, is that they knew that they were naked. And so then the first, the first example of human manufacturing occurs. This is the first place where we learn in the Bible that something is made by man. And what man did, what Adam and Eve did, is they sewed fig leaves together. They created something to cover their nakedness, to hide what they perceived to be inadequacy, to hide what God had made, and to make it better in their perception. Because they perceived that their nakedness was something to be ashamed of, and they were going to make it better. And that's not the only thing that they did to try to hide their inadequacy. They also hid. They hid in the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God doesn't say, well, you shouldn't be naked. He said, who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And so the... The attempt to hide uh, their inadequacy 
The Adam and Eve's attempt to hide their inadequacy through hiding in the garden, through manufacturing clothes, uh, was evidence of their distance from God. It is what God uses to point out that they have, um, or, or to it is the, the instance that shows uh, that they have broken this commandment. It's their awareness of their nakedness, because otherwise they wouldn't know. Who told you that thou was naked? It's because they ate of that tree. It's because they broke the commandment, and that is the, the immediate effect, is their distance from God and their attempt to hide their inadequacy and make it better. And so the, the knowledge of good and evil, ironically, seems to lead them away from God. It's their awareness of good and evil, is their perception of good and evil, and, and their attempt to, to use that to make things different from how God made them that leads them away from God. And it's because of their knowledge of good and evil that they are expelled from the garden. In uh, verse 22 of chapter 3, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. And so the, the knowledge of good and evil, the ability to discern between good and evil, made it so that Adam and Eve couldn't any longer live in the garden of Eden. And the immediate effect of that knowledge was that they attempted to hide themselves in their inadequacy. They attempted to make things better than God had made them himself. And so with that, I'd like to turn to Galatians, which was a long time after, it was, it was written a long time after uh, the book of Genesis. But again, I think that there is a, a similar theme and in Galatians, Paul the Apostle is writing to the church of Galatia, which, if you can imagine it today, is right about in the middle of where Turkey is. And um, Paul you know, has a short introduction, and then he identifies a conflict that his letter is going to address. And it's, it's fairly early. In, in verse 6 of chapter 1, Paul identifies that somebody else is preaching a different gospel from the one that he preached when he was there at the church of Galatia. And he is distressed by this different, um, this different preaching that they're calling a gospel. In verse 6, he says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. And so these are strong words to, to say that what, what they are being taught is not the gospel, and it is in fact a perversion of the gospel. And what he says is the perversion of the gospel, the difference between what Paul taught and what the church of Galatia is being taught uh, at the time that he's writing this, is the difference between bondage and liberty. Paul characterizes Jesus' gospel as liberty and the perversion of that as bondage. And in verse 11 of chapter 1, Paul says, I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul didn't go to seminary to learn this gospel. I mean, he was a very well-educated man in religious things. He was a Pharisee. He was a uh, 
uh, highly educated. Um, but he did not receive the gospel that he was preaching to the church of Galatia, to the other churches, from man. He received it directly from the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so he didn't get it from man. He didn't uh, coordinate with the other apostles to come up with his message that he was preaching. He says in, in verse 16, uh, once, uh, when it pleased God, who, or verse 15, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. So he didn't go and talk to religious leaders about the message that he had received from Jesus Christ. Instead, he went to preach about it. And and so this is a, a revelation directly from God. It's not something that he has received through his education in the law. And, and that's important because the difference between the liberty that Paul talks about uh, and the bondage that, is, that he calls the perversion of Christ's message is the reliance on the law as a mechanism for salvation. And so Paul first talks about the, the difference between liberty and bondage in chapter 2 of uh, Galatians, verse 4, that because of false brethren unawares brought in who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. And so, again, Paul is saying that Jesus Christ's gospel is a gospel of liberty. And that the people who have come in to speak to the church of Galatia who have perverted that gospel are trying to bring the people in the church into bondage. And so that's the difference, is between bondage of the law and and the liberty of Jesus Christ. And and Paul talks about this in in verse 16 of chapter 2. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So, the law, Paul says, is a curse. Because there's no way to justify yourself by following the law. We can see it uh, in the Garden of Eden uh, with with Eve. There's one commandment, and she can't follow it. She can't follow it. Adam can't follow it. Um, And then by trying to make it better, by trying to hide their inadequacy, they actually make it worse. And so by trying to save themselves, they made things worse. They increased the distance between themselves and God. And the problem with relying on the law, with relying on our self-compelled obedience to the law to save us, is that if that is the way, if that's the way, um, then you have to be perfect. Right. You, you can't be inadequate. You have to make yourself perfect. We haven't been perfect, uh, in our sight at least, from the beginning, uh, from the Garden of Eden. It's not something that it's possible for us to do on our own. Um, And so the law is a curse. And and Paul says as much in chapter 3, verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So if you are under the law 
You're not in under the law part of the way. You're not sort of under the law. You're not under the law in some things and not in other things. You're not um, under the law insofar as you do the right thing and not under the law insofar as you do the wrong thing. If you're taking responsibility for that, if you are uh, self-righteously doing things to make yourself acceptable, if you are making yourself perfect, then you have to make yourself perfect. You have to do everything under the law. And that's putting your faith in the law and faith in yourself. And Paul says, and the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. And so the faith in the law, um, relying upon yourself, is, is no real faith at all. It is simply uh, resigning yourself to defeat. You cannot fulfill the law on your own by making things better than God made them. And so you cannot hide your inadequacy through fealty to the law, by obeying the law. It's just not something that you can do. And so the liberty of Christ is that everyone who is in Christ is not under the law. In chapter 4 of Galatians, Paul says, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. And so there is, there, there, uh, there's liberty and there's the law. And you can't have faith, Paul says, you can't have faith in Christ and also have faith that you can make yourself acceptable. In chapter 5, he says, Stand fast, therefore, in verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And again, there is the, the difference, the, the uh, dichotomy between liberty and bondage. That the way of Christ is liberty, and the way of the law is bondage. And that you can't have it both ways. In verse 4 of chapter 5, Paul says, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. So being justified by the law is in fact against, it's at cross purposes with, with, uh, uh, with grace. It is at cross purposes from the justification by grace and it's at cross purposes from salvation because if you are attempting to justify yourself under the law then you are having faith in that law and not in grace and so it can't be both ways um, and so there's a difference here I think that Paul is pointing out between uh, the grace of God, the way that God has made things, and the salvation that God through Jesus Christ grants to us, not through uh, our own works, but again, through, through the grace of God. And by attempting to, um, to make things better, to do what Eve did in the garden, uh, and to, to hide our inadequacy through um, uh, trying to make things better than God made them is uh, a way to is, is the way away from God. It's the way uh, to increase our separation from God, and not the way um, to real salvation. And Paul is careful at the end of Galatians to to point out that. Liberty, the liberty of Christ is not a reason to simply engage in um, gratification of the flesh. That uh, if you're walking in the spirit with love, then you're going to fulfill the law by doing that. He says, 
in, in verse 13 of chapter 5, Use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And so, it's not that the law is, um, is not good. The law is good. It is not that we should not try to... Uh, it's, it's not that the law is leading us astray. It is that the law can't be fulfilled by us working by ourselves. The law is fulfilled as a result of our uh, salvation by grace, not through our own actions. And so that's, a, that's a, a little bit nuanced, I think, but I think it's extremely important that there's, that, that the, the importance is in the placing of ourselves, where we place ourselves in relationship with God. And so Eve placed herself in the position of knowing what's good and making it so, or attempting to make it so, and then attempting to cover up the fact that it wasn't. Um, And so she was placing herself in a position of control. I think what Paul is talking about is placing ourselves in a position of Um, understanding and acknowledging our inadequacy, of recognizing our inadequacy and the superiority of God and God's ultimate total control. And that it's only by recognizing that and placing ourselves in the proper relationship with God um, that we can actually... Um, take advantage of the free gift of, of, of Jesus Christ and the free gift of grace uh, and salvation that he offers. would like to uh, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. We had started a few weeks ago uh, talking about the resurrection, and we're going to look at these verses and probably... Uh, wrap it up here on 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So, the Apostle Paul addresses in the Corinthian letter uh, some inadequacies that the church at Corinth had embraced. And one of the shortcomings that he specifically embraces right here that he says is so important as part of your uh, part of your doctrine, part of your understanding is the correct view of the resurrection uh, of the dead and also of Jesus Christ. And then he tells us, in fact, he mentions six things right here in 1 Corinthians 15 that he says, if there be no resurrection, and some folks had actually come among them and they begin to bring this, uh, this heresy that Paul completely exposes directly for the purpose of bringing them back to an understanding and understanding the importance of realizing simply that the dead will be raised again. And he says, this is a big deal. It's important. And there's a lot of things that hinge upon it. And if the dead rise not, he mentions six different things right here that sort of hinge on the dead being raised. So as these folks that came among the church at Corinth and began to maybe plant seeds of doubt or even begin to lead folks astray by saying that there be no resurrection of the dead, then Paul comes along and he uh, addresses it head on. And he says, uh, yes, there is resurrection of the dead. And and if not, here's some things that, that directly hinge upon it. Paul starts out in verse 1 of chapter 15, and he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also have, ye have received, wherein ye stand. The Apostle Paul 
uh, as Brother Ben brought out, the Apostle Paul didn't uh, adopt or come up with this gospel himself. The Apostle Paul didn't embrace it because of some teaching that he had been taught. But the Apostle Paul delivers this message because he believes that God called him and God gave him and equipped him to deliver this message. And God put it upon his heart to do it and gave him the desire to do it. And he says, God is the one that blessed me with this desire and this ability. And then he says, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. I don't believe that Paul is teaching right here that if we fail to remember something, we're going to lose our salvation. But there is a deliverance in believing in Jesus Christ, in believing in the resurrection, in believing in heaven. There's a great joy and there's a great comfort that you have in that if you realize it. If he was saying right here that if we have our salvation one minute, as long as we believe it, and then as soon as we quit believing it, do we lose our salvation? I'm with folks throughout the week, uh, many throughout the week that suffer with the affliction of memory issues and Alzheimer's and dementia. And this right here would basically say that if someone forgets about their salvation, if they forget about it, they're going to lose it. Well, that what would happen to people like that, that when their mind gets so bad that they can't remember it or they can't retain it, would they lose their salvation? Absolutely not. But as long as you do embrace it and you understand it, there is a deliverance in it. Paul says, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also uh, I also received how that Christ and here is this this summarizes the resurrection right here. But Paul says, I delivered unto you how that Christ died for our sins, according to scriptures. And, and this is the message that Paul says is uh, is his is his strong desire. Not that this is the only thing that Paul preached, but this is one of the most important things that Paul preached. He says, for I delivered unto you, first of all, which I also that which I received. He said, first of all, I have taught you how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And I have taught you how that Christ was buried and how that he rose again on the third day, according to scriptures. Paul says, this is part of the fundamental part of the message that I come to deliver unto you. And he says, don't let it be confused. Don't let it be challenged. Don't you deviate from this very important message that Jesus Christ died for your sins. Jesus Christ was buried and that Jesus Christ himself rose again on the third day. And he says, so if somebody comes along and brings another message or another doctrine or another gospel unto you, which is really not another. He says, you don't embrace it because this is very, very important that Jesus. Jesus Christ died for your sins. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. And as a result, all of those that are in Christ Jesus will also arise uh, at the resurrection day. Now, this is a great chapter. We'll touch on some important points right here. I love this chapter. First of all, he says, Jesus Christ arose from the grave. And he says, and we have eyewitnesses that Christ arose from the grave. Brother Ben could tell us how important it is when you have a testimony of an eyewitness that it's not hearsay, it's not speculation, but it's somebody that saw it with their own eyes. And so the Apostle Paul is, is, uh, is establishing his position here, is establishing his case that there are eyewitnesses about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says right here, he says, first of all, he was seen of Cephas. Uh, of Peter. Then he was seen of the 12, actually 10 of the 12, but he refers to the disciples. And after that, he was seen of 500 brethren, uh, of 500 brethren, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. And so what he's saying right here is that there's a few of that 500 that have already passed from this life, but he says there's still some that are living that were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says, and after that, he was seen of James, 
and he was seen of all the apostles. And Paul says, and last of all, he was seen of me as one born out of due time. And then Paul begins to diminish his role in uh, acknowledging the resurrection of Christ and in, 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 in being referred to as a, a, a relating himself to the apostles. And he tells us why. He says, for I am the least of the apostles and I'm not even me to be called an apostle. Paul says, I'm, uh, and, and Paul was caught up into a heavenly vision. Uh, also, when Paul experienced his experience on the road to Damascus, he saw some wonderful things that had an impact upon his life. He says, but I'm not, I'm the least of the apostles. I am not me to be called an apostle. And then he tells us why. He says, because I persecuted the church of God. And Paul, he had letters to cast Christians into prison. He stood there at the stoning of Stephen and consented unto the stoning of Stephen. And that weighed upon him. And he says, I'm not worthy to be referred to as an apostle. But then he comes down and he says, and I think this is interesting right here. And this is a theme that was brought out in Brother Ben's message. And it's something that we ought to embrace. Uh, there's a message that um, Elder Bradley preached about not more thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And this here, Paul is embracing this right here. Paul says in verse 10, he says, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. He says, but I am what I am by the grace of Almighty God. And that's part of the theme of what Brother Ben brought forth this morning. Is that we're not what we are by keeping the law. That the law is not our friend as far as, far as us keeping the law. That it condemns us. But that we are what we are simply by the grace of Almighty God. And that's what Paul is saying right here. He says, I am what I am by the grace of God. And then he comes down and he says, by the grace which was bestowed upon me, he says, it was not in vain. He says, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace which was with me. Paul says, and then he compares himself uh, to the uh, uh, apostles right there. He says, I labored more abundantly than they all, referring to the other apostles. But then he comes right back and he, he starts off and he says, I am what I am by the grace of God. He says, I took what God gave me and I began to use it to the best of my ability. He says, in fact, I labored more abundantly than they all. But he says, let me remind you again that I am what I am by the grace of God. It's only by God's grace that I even have the ability to labor on behalf of Almighty God. But then he comes down and he presents this question right here. And I think this is real important. He says, I'm coming to you to remind you and to reiterate the importance of believing in the resurrection of the dead, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Elder Dickey Hobbywax came several years ago and several folks did uh, that were with him. And he's the pastor of the church in um, uh, Austin, uh, Oak Hill Primitive Baptist Church. Wonderful church, wonderful preacher. He and some other folks came up to the Right to Life uh, gathering in uh, January. And after it, uh, he stayed a couple of days, preached for us. And then on the way back to the airport, we were talking. And I think it was Brother... Andrew Huffman, maybe, that was with us in the car. Brother Dickey was in the back seat, and he began to talk to us about resurrection and about heaven. And I tell you, by the time we got to the airport, we hated to let him out because he was just preaching to us about heaven and how wonderful and glorious it was and the resurrection of the dead. And one of the best messages I ever heard about the resurrection was in the car between Bel Air and the airport through Brother Dickey Hobbs. Wonderful message about the resurrection. Paul says the resurrection of the dead is very, very important to us. And he says, don't you ever doubt it. And don't you let somebody come along and plant seeds of doubt in your mind. And he says, here's why it is. He says, if there be no resurrection of the dead, if if if, if we're referring to ourselves as Sadducees and you can understand why they are Sadducees, because they are sad to see They're sad to be around. They don't have 
the hope of the resurrection of the dead. If, if we don't have any, any hope of heaven and the resurrection of the dead, then, then what about all those folks that have gone on uh, that, that, that ha- have passed from our life? That's the end of it. Paul says right here, he says in verse 13, he starts out and he mentions six things right here. He says, if there be no resurrection of the dead, if there's no resurrection, he says, then Christ is not risen. Christ is dead and he's not risen. So if we don't believe in the resurrection, then there's no need to believe in Jesus Christ because the whole purpose of believing in Jesus Christ is that he uh, paid the price for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. So Paul begins to establish the case. He said, look back at all of those eyewitnesses that actually testified that Jesus Christ arose from the grave, arose from the dead. He says, if there be no resurrection of the dead, he says, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, Paul mentions five other things right here. He says, if Christ be not risen, he says, then our preaching is vain. He says, there's no purpose, no purpose in Brother Cook, no purpose in Brother Ben, no purpose in Elder Aquino, no purpose in Elder Smith or Elder White or Brother Danny or anybody else standing up and attempting to encourage you in the things of the Lord if Jesus Christ did not arise from the grave. That's the basis for it all. He says, if there be no resurrection of the dead, then number one, Christ is not risen. Verse 14, he says, then your preaching is in vain. And he says, and then your faith is vain also. Now, everybody here, I don't think you'd be here if you didn't have a measure of faith. The faith that you have is what drives you, is what sustains you. And that faith you have is a gift from God. The faith you have is not something you go out and conjure up. It's not something you go out and get yourself. The faith you have is a result of God quickening you with the spirit of Almighty God, giving you spiritual life. And part of that, excuse my excuse my terminology right here, but part of the entire package is that God gives you faith. When he quickens you with the spirit of almighty God. That's a blessing from God. Your faith is a blessing from God. God also gives you the ability to have an understanding or an appreciation about the things of God. About heaven itself and about Jesus Christ. That comes with God quickening you with the spirit of God. Doesn't mean that you have everything all completely figured out. But you have spiritual life, which gives you a desire for things above. It is. So he says, number one, if there's no resurrection, then Christ hasn't risen. Number two, if there be no resurrection, uh, then not only is Christ not risen, but our preaching is in vain. Number three, if there be no resurrection, he says, then your faith is vain also. And he says, and, 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 and in verse 15, and, and, and even Brother Phil could uh, re- reiterate the importance of the, the witnesses. He says, if Christ be not risen, if there be no resurrection of the dead, he says, not only is your preaching vain, is your faith vain, but these witnesses that have testified that they witnessed, that they were eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ, he said, then they're false witnesses. They just made it up. They just conjured conjured it up. And they're not true witnesses. They are false witnesses. He says, your preaching is vain. Your faith is vain. They're false witnesses. He says, and and then this next one right here is, is real important. He says, not only is your preaching vain, your faith vain, not only are there false witnesses. He says, if there be no resurrection... And this is really bad. This is where we this is where we land. This is the end result. He says, then not only is your your faith in vain, not only is your preaching in vain, not only are there false witnesses, but he says, then you are yet in your sins. Your only hope of being delivered from your sins is that Jesus Christ paid for your sins upon the cross, that he did what he said he did, he gave his life. 
He was buried and that he rose again and that when he said it is finished, that it actually was finished and he did the work himself. He says that there be no resurrection. He says this is the importance of you embracing and understanding the resurrection of the dead and of Jesus Christ is that if you don't, if you don't embrace that, you have no hope of being delivered from your sins. You are yet in your sins. And then he says something else. I didn't understand this verse. May not fully understand it now, but I think I have a little bit of understanding about it. He says in uh, in verse nineteen, he says, "If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable." So I didn't understand that completely. I'll tell you how I believe that what it means right now. If 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 we don't embrace that there is a resurrection of the dead and of Christ. Then he's basically saying in this life, this life is all there is. And he says, and then we're, we're, we're most miserable. We're in a most miserable state. Heaven, the resurrection, brings about a lot of encouragement. When we get weary along the way and we get discouraged along the way, we can let our mind travel just a short distance and begin to think about heaven and begin to think about things above. We're taught in uh, Colossians chapter 3. Set our affection on things above, not on things of this earth, but on things above. It's amazing when we begin to sing about heaven, when we begin to talk about heaven, when we begin to think about heaven. It's amazing how that it encourages us along the way. When we get weary along the way, we can realize that, that this life is just temporary. This is not all there is. This is not the best there is. The best is yet to come. Brother Mike Rogers and Sister Lori, when they were visiting, they gave me this uh, little plaque that has a, uh, a fork uh, on it. And, and uh, it, 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 it has the impression or says something on it that the best is yet to come. And it's talking about that heaven and immortal glory is far better than what we have. Paul tells us it's far better. But he says right here, he says, if we, if we only live in this life and nothing else, then he says we're most miserable. That's why they referred to him as Sadducees. They were miserable folks because they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead and of Jesus Christ. Paul says we have eyewitnesses of the resurrection of the dead. Then he comes down, and this is... This is really good. Uh, <clears throat> some folks were, were questioning, and, and all of chapter 15 is so, so very good. So good. Uh, encourage you to read chapter 15. It just gets progressively better as you go. Another point that I, that I perplexed me a little bit. Right here in the middle of this chapter, the chapter's 53 verses, I believe, 58 verses. But right here in the middle of this chapter where he's talking about the resurrection of Christ and of the dead, just right in the middle, and it just seems so out of place for me. It's not that the Scripture's out of place. It's that I don't understand it. If it's, it's not that it's out of place. But right here in the middle, he just kind of plugs this little important verse in. Now, this verse can be applied especially for young people, but it's good for all of us. But he says... Verse 33, it just seemed, it seemed to me when I'm reading it or when I'm studying it, it just seems so out of place because it's talking about the resurrection. It's talking about the, the change that's going to come. But he says right here in verse 33, he says, Be not deceived. Now, Satan was the author of deceiving Eve. In fact, when that brother Ben sort of passed over this, but as we, he was reading about it, but, but when Adam was approached about it, he said, well, it's Eve that did it. She made me do it. And he liked to pass the blame. And that is like our initial approach that we like to pass the blame to somebody else. And here it says that we're not to be deceived. Well, we can pass the blame right here to Satan because he is the great deceiver. But he says, be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. And I think one of the understandings of why he put it right here in the middle of this chapter is he was dealing with the heresy that there be no resurrection. And I think he was saying right here, you make sure you don't listen to somebody that's bringing about a heresy like that. 
because he said it will have an impact upon you. Now, this verse is powerful and we could preach an entire message about it. But he's basically saying here that the people that you're around, you think you might be stronger than uh, uh, an influence that's around you. That the people that you're around have an influence upon you in some capacity. And he says it's generally not good. And that's why it's so important that the people that you're around are godly and upbeat and positive serving God. He says, be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. He says, don't be, don't think, don't let Satan deceive you to think that you're not going to be impacted by those that are around you. And I think why he put it in the middle of this chapter, one of the reasons may be is that he was talking to them about the importance of not embracing the heresy that came among them. There was a preacher that came here. Uh, I've heard a few of the recordings of Elder Thompson. Not many, but a few recordings of Preacher Thompson. Some of you knew Preacher Thompson. He pastored the church here almost 50 years. And he was, uh, even in his latter years, he was very uh, protective of the pulpit. And this preacher came, was traveling and passing through, and he began to embrace No, he began to teach something that was not right. And Elder Thompson just gently called him down and sort of bid him on his way. And he said, we don't embrace that way of thinking here. We're not going to embrace that way of thinking. And he just gently uh, sort of bid him Godspeed. Well, that's what Paul is doing. And he's saying, don't embrace false teaching and false doctrine. Now, he begins to talk about the details of the resurrection and the change. And I just want to hit just a couple more points. It's really, really good. In starting with verse 37, he uses the comparison of uh, the, the grain and how that it is planted in the earth and that it dies. But when it comes forth, it comes forth in a different fashion. The little grain doesn't come forth just as a little grain, but it comes forth as a completely different plant according to the plan that God has. So you plant and the little grain dies in the earth, but it comes forth as this tremendous plant. You do the same with corn. I'm amazed. I, I, when Elder, Elder uh, Gail Ferries visited from Texas, we went up to um, the Amish country and Brother Gail's about five foot nine or ten. And he said, would you park the car? It was in the fall of the year. He said, would you pull over to the side of the road? He said, I've got to get a picture. And he went out and he wanted us to take a picture of him standing next to the corn stalks. They were almost 12 feet tall up there by where Brother Kilby lives, Brother David and Brother Edmund. And he stood by it and it was about twice as tall as what he was. And he was so amazed he'd never seen anything quite like that. That little seed dies, but when it comes forth, it's completely different in this magnificent plant that God has changed. That's how God is going to change us when we get to glory. It's not going to be the same way that we're laid in the earth and laid into the tomb, but there's a change that's going to come, and it's going to be far better than what we have here. This body is going to be changed. And it talks about, the, it talks about in Corinthians, the, the staining and the damage that sin does to us here in this life, that this, the toll that sin takes on us here in this life. But he says when we get to heaven... That's not going to go with us to heaven. That's going to be changed. That's going to be removed. And this being that we're going to be changed into is going to be made likened unto Jesus Christ. Now, I want to just share this one thought because it's so, so good. So good. Paul says in verse 51. Now, all these verses before talk about the change. It's going to be sown in in corruption. It's going to be uh, sown in weakness. It's going to be raised in power. It's going to be raised in glory. It's going to be raised incorruptible. But then, and he talks about the change. And then he says here, and I love this right here. Behold, I show you a mystery. That's interesting how he says that. A mystery. I'm I'm going to share something with you that may seem mysterious. But he says, I want to show you a mystery. He says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And I think what he's saying right here 
is that when Christ comes back, we have clear instructions in the scripture that there will be many that are in the graves, but there's still going to be some that are alive. And what he's saying right here, we're not all going to be in the graves. Many will be in the graves, but there's going to be some that are alive. But he says, there's one thing that we all have in common. Those that are in the grave and those that are alive, they're going to be changed. Now, in my mind, when I first read that, I I, I thought about in my mind, I thought, how's that going to happen? What if we're still alive? What, I'm just kind of thinking through this. What if we're still alive when the Lord comes back? How is it that he's going to change us? I mean, really, if he came back right now, this morning, how are we going to actually experience this change? I'm looking forward to the change. Uh, you know, we have different things that we look forward to. We look forward, some folks look forward to retirement. They, they spend all their life looking forward to retiring. And then when they retire, uh, usually folks that retire don't last too long. So it might be encouraging to just keep on working as long as you can. But some folks look forward to retirement. Some folks look forward to vacation. Some folks look forward to a new home. Some folks look forward to getting out of school. Uh, some folks look forward to getting married. Uh, you look forward to all these different things and those can be uh, blessings in and of themselves but I tell you the greatest thing that you can look forward to in your whole life is is something that happens in one moment it's not when you pass from this life but it is in, in that moment that he talks about right here in verse 52 he says first of all we're not going to all sleep but we are going to all be changed and he says it's going to happen in a moment in a moment in the twinkling of an eye At the last trump, the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible. And Paul had written this as if he was still going to be here. He says the dead in Christ are going to be changed in the moment. They're going to be made incorruptible. And then he says, and we shall be changed. Your change is going to take place in the moment, in the twinkling of eye. It's going to happen that quick. I don't understand progressive sanctification. Hard for me to relate to it. The more I desire to do the the right thing, the more I realize that I do the wrong thing. And I'm like the Apostle Paul. I can relate to him like this in in Romans chapter 7, where he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ. There's a change that's coming. We're not going to reach such a a progressive state that we don't need this change. Every single one of us are in great need of this change. And it's going to happen if if God calls us forth from the tomb. It's going to happen in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Now, the twinkling of an eye, you bat your eye, it's going to happen that quick or quicker than that. That's how quick this change is going to take place. And if you're still living... I don't know if he's going to do it before he pulls us up off the ground as we're in the sky or as we get close to heaven. But I guarantee you that it's going to happen really, really, really quick. And it's going to you're going to be completely changed. And Paul says, that's a mystery that I'm showing to you. That's the moment we ought to be looking forward to. That's the moment that we ought to long for is that when God changes us from corruptible to incorruptible. He goes on down and he says, for this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. Oh, this next. I love these next verses right here. I I just love this portion of of text. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? Basically, what he's saying right here, if you know about the resurrection of Christ, if you know about the resurrection of the dead, if you know that Christ paid the price for your sins, he says, it's going to take away that sting of death. It doesn't mean that you don't sorrow, but you sorrow as others don't. You don't sorrow as others which have no hope because you do have hope. It just means that 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 yes, yes, death, there is a separation, but it's only for a short season. And for those of us that are 60, 70, 80 years old, it's not that long before the Lord is going to make that change. And he says, oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But Paul, he sums it up right here. He says, but thanks be to God. Paul had already started out and he says, I serve God because of the grace that's
that's in me. I am what I am by the grace of Almighty God. He says your salvation, your deliverance is in Jesus Christ. He says you ought to thank God for this hope that you have. He says for thanks be to God which giveth us. That's all of us that are here. That's those that have gone on to be with the Lord. He says but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You are victorious over sin. You are victorious over death. You are victorious over hell. You are victorious over the grave because of what Jesus Christ did. And you ought to be thankful. And you ought to rejoice in it. And you ought to look for and long for that day when it's going to happen in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that He's going to change us and take us home to glory. The resurrection is a great blessing for us. We ought to think about it and feast on it and give God the glory because it's all about Him.